Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is the word of our Lord. Good morning, family of God. I want to pray one more time, asking God for his help this morning. Would you bow with me? Oh, God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us as the most high God, the creator who is king over all kings and as our friend who comes near to us in Jesus Christ. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness towards us in big ways, like sending Jesus to rescue us and to bring us into relationship with yourself and in countless small gifts. This morning, as your children, we just want to ask for your help. Would you give us wisdom this morning? Would you give us courage to do the work you've called us to do? Would you bring healing to our wounded hearts? Would you equip us? We open ourselves to the ministry of your Holy Spirit, whatever you want to do with us. We say, have your way, Lord. Forgive our sins. Cleanse us. And guide us into the work that you want us to do for your glory. And I pray, Lord, as we're talking about this theme of public discipleship, that you would use today and this, these few weeks in the life of our church to help us to have a better understanding and then to walk out that understanding. But to have a better understanding of how you want to use us to bring your purposes to fulfillment in our generation. Pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Well, as I just mentioned in that prayer, today is the second week in our sermon series called Public Discipleship. Today we're turning to Psalm 82 to help us think about this theme. Before I do that, I want to take... A minute or two, if you'll bear with me, to review some of the big ideas we talked about last week to help us put into perspective what's happening here in Psalm 82. Here's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The Son of God, Jesus, came to earth to save sinners like us. Amen. He died on the cross for our sins and rose again so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can... Enjoy eternal life. We don't have to earn that life. We just believe in Jesus and by grace we're forgiven and accepted and 
the essence of that eternal life, according to John 17, is that we get to know God. And that's not something that starts after we die. It can start today for you. If you're a Christian, you already enjoy that relationship with God. But what we were talking about last week was this theme that this relationship that we enjoy with Jesus transforms every aspect of our lives, our private lives and also our public lives. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. Colossians 1 says all things were created by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is head and Lord over all things, which means Jesus is Lord over the intimate details of my private life. And it also means Jesus is Lord over everything that we think of as the public sphere. Jesus is king over every king. He's Lord over every Senate, every Congress, every parliament, every prime minister in the world, every court of justice. He's Lord over the European Union and the United Nations. Jesus is Lord over the realm of commerce. Jesus is Lord over the realm of the arts and culture and music and cinema. Jesus is Lord over the sphere of education. You get where I'm going with this. Jesus is Lord over the family. Jesus is Lord over entrepreneurship and he's Lord over government. Jesus is Lord over everything. So everybody say, Jesus is Lord. And when we follow Christ... Our lives increasingly reflect that lordship of Jesus. So last week we looked in the Sermon on the Mount, famous sermon of Jesus in which he talked about this reality of wanting to transform both our private lives and our public lives. So if you were here, you remember Matthew 6, Jesus is talking about secret spiritual disciplines when we pray in secret and we give to the poor in secret and we fast in secret. And the point of this is teaching us to really know God and to trust him and to live for an audience of one. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches that this issue of discipleship is not merely personal. It is also public. And so that's what Chauncey was talking about a moment ago. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, which means we've got a calling, an opportunity, a privilege, a responsibility from God to be God's agents of change in the world through our words and through our deeds, bearing witness to the kingdom of God. It takes wisdom to do that. The Holy Spirit transforms us to be more like Jesus so that when we're doing his work in the world, the boldness and the humility of Jesus, the patience and the courage of Jesus start flowing out of us. Now, those were the big ideas from last week, but we need to move beyond that and start talking about more. What does that look like? We did talk about that a little bit last week. This picture behind me is the Apostle Paul we talked about from X. 16, and the center of intellectual life within the Greco-Roman world, bearing witness about Jesus in a way that was challenging the views of his day. And we talked about historical examples, William Wilberforce and Mother Teresa and all kinds of people that have brought significant change into the world. Now, today we're turning to Psalm 82 within the context of this idea of public discipleship, because this is a psalm that helps us think about power. Power is a really important concept in the Bible, and power is a really important theme in life. So everybody say power. We cannot think about public discipleship without thinking about power. First of all, we've got to think about the power that you and all you and I have. We do have power. Every one of us has an ability to influence the lives of other people. We've got power. And we need to think about how do we as Christians relate to those who are more powerful than us, And how do we relate to people who are less powerful than us? 
How do we relate to governing powers and authorities? How do we relate to weak and vulnerable people who are loved by God? Those are important questions. Now, I'm going to give you a spoiler for the sermon. Tell you kind of the big idea here, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time unpacking this. If we ask the Bible the question, what should I do with power? If I have power, what should I do with it? One of the best answers we could give is the first five verses of verse three, which is also the title of our sermon today. Give justice to the weak. Look at verse three in your text. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Give justice to the weak. Now, we're going to spend the next several minutes putting those five words in their context and trying to unpack and think carefully, biblically about what does that mean. But we can say simply right now, here's the big idea. If you have power from God, which which you do, all of us, some of us have more power, some of us have less power. But insofar as you have any kind of power, God wants you to use it to serve people. God wants you to use it to bless others, not to control and manipulate other people for your own gain, but to serve people. This is what Jesus did for us. And this is the way that he's calling us to live. So if you're a parent here, we got some parents in the house. If you're a parent here, serve your kids, give justice to your children, bless them. If you're a big sister or a big brother, you may not feel like you've got that much power, but your little siblings might disagree. So they're saying the word of God here is saying, give justice to that little brother, that little sister. Use your age, your size, your influence to bless them. If you're a manager or a supervisor at work, use that position To serve other people. To bless them. You get the idea? Everybody say, give justice to the weak. There are people around you who you can influence that in one way or another they have less power than you. And you're supposed to use your power to bless them. That's the big idea. Now to help us really understand this in context, what we've got to do is look at verses 1 and 2 and try to figure out what this is even talking about. Verses 1 and 2 are, it's a powerful image, but it requires some thought. To try and understand what this means. So look, look with me at those verses. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So here's the scene. God is sitting on a throne of judgment. In a council, there's a bunch of beings around and it's called the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment if you're looking at the same translation i am that's a little g gods with an s plural now this should already be like a red flag for christians we're like what's going on here right because we only worship one god i want to make that clear everybody say there's only one god it's only one god the bible teaches that a whole bunch of times so It raises the question, what is this talking about? There's these beings called gods, and there's a picture where they're all sitting around, and God, the king, the judge, is giving judgment, and he's rebuking them for the misuse of power. Do you see that in verse 2? How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? You're using your position of power wrongly to 
exploit people. You're showing favoritism to wicked people. You're being unjust. So the psalmist here is speaking prophetically in this prophetic mode, describing to us this scene. But the question is, who is God addressing here? Who are these little G gods? Now, I'm going to tell you two or three options how people have interpreted this text. First option, which is the one that, from what I can tell, is probably the most commonly agreed upon interpretation of this text, is that when the text talks about these gods, these little g gods, it's actually talking about human civil authorities, government leaders. So that's like a judge, a president, a senator. And so when you look at verses 6 and 7, you can read this and, and see, I said... You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. In this time period, many government leaders, kings, emperors, actually called themselves divine. They said they were gods and called on people to worship them as gods. And so it seems that the psalmist here is being somewhat ironic and even mocking and said, hey, you think you're a god. Fine. God created you. You're all sons of the most high, but you're going to die like any man, like any prince. In other words, you're accountable to a power greater than yourself, even if you call yourself a god. Now that we can find ancient Jewish interpreters understanding the psalm this way, major Christian theologians and most of the resources I looked up recently. There's another possibility here which could come in a couple of forms. This could be talking about some sort of spiritual power, kind of like maybe what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 6, when he talks about powers and principalities and spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. In other words, this could be about demons. Or, as some really good scholars have thought, this could be talking about the fake gods, the idols, the Canaanite gods of the surrounding cultures. If that's the case... God is calling to account the false religious figures, false gods in the surrounding culture and perhaps the demonic powers behind them and saying, you think of yourself as powerful, but I'm about to expose your weakness and your folly and judge you. So there's a couple of different options here. And you probably want me to tell you which one is right, right? Right. Well, personally, I think if, if we're saying, okay, is this government authorities? Is this demonic powers? Is this false Canaanite gods? The, the best answer might actually be D, all of the above. Now, I say that not because that gives me an easy out. It does do that. <laughs> but also, I think that that's probably the best way to make sense of this psalm within its context. Because one of the things we have to understand is within the ancient Near Eastern cultures that this psalm is coming out of, the political and the religious were completely mixed together. I mean, the political and the religious are still connected in our culture, but much more at this time. So like we mentioned a second ago, kings would often call themselves God and, gods and say, you got to worship me. But also... The gods, the actual like idols that had priests and stuff in temples in these ancient cultures were often seen as national or tribal deities that were there to shore up the power of the king. So the political and the religious go together and the idols that you worship in the temple and the king that you bow to in the court are all part of the same system. So really, it could be talking about both and all of the above and all of it mixed together. Now, as I was reading a bunch of stuff about this over the last few weeks, I thought, you know what? I bet African Christians are thinking about this better than we are in the West. 
And the reason I thought that is because I had a little flashback to a moment in seminary class years ago. And there was a great African uh, scholar who was there talking to us. And, and he said, listen, my friends in the West, Western Christians, you need to listen to Africans for, for a lot of reasons. But one of them is the cultures and worldviews that many African Christians are coming from have a lot more in common than with the biblical culture, biblical cultures, cultures going on in the Bible, than your American culture does. And so he said, one of the ways that it has in common is we think of supernatural, angelic, demonic powers and things that are happening around us in daily life and political forces and all that stuff is intertwined. So when we think about spiritual warfare, we think about, you know, the devil trying to tempt you to cheat, cheat on your wife. But we also think about the devil behind these demonic powers of genocide that are affecting our tribal community. So we think about them all together. So I had that thought, and so I pulled out my African study Bible, Africa study Bible. By the way, here's a free plug. I'm not getting paid for this. They're not sponsoring. The name's not on the back of my shirt or anything. But the Africa study Bible is awesome. You can go get it on Amazon. A few hundred African scholars and pastors and theologians came together. And I I flipped to Psalm 82 to hear what they wrote about this. And I want you to listen to this, okay? I'm going to read you a few sentences. Here's how they summarize this psalm. The scene... Of Psalm 82 is God's courtroom where he is about to pass judgment. The false gods, in scare quotes, the false gods or leaders of this world have no power in the face of Almighty God. Psalm 82 teaches that God casts down the leaders and spiritual forces. See, it's not either or, it's both and. God cast down the leaders and spiritual forces that enslave humanity because they do not meet God's standard for behavior. They have taken advantage of and ignored needy people. These false gods have perpetuated injustice against the helpless. As a result, regardless of their power, they will be condemned. The quote continues. While people with power and position often evade punishment, Psalm 82 does not accept anything less than God's righteous verdict. Even their positions of power will not protect evildoers. God loves people who are outcasts and wants them to receive grace. When those people are abused, God punishes their abusers, even when the abusers are great leaders or spiritual powers. End of quote. I think that's what this psalm is about. That's a pretty great summary of the psalm. And that's the big picture here. But I want to zoom in now and look at a few of the parts to help us unpack more fully this message and then think about how does this affect how we live now? We don't live in the ancient Near East. This is the 21st century. This is America. How does it affect how we follow Jesus today? So let's look, look at a few of these parts. First, zoom in with me for a moment at verse 5. Verse 5 teaches that when people, or demons for that matter, abuse their power... They're living in ignorance and darkness. They have neither knowledge, says verse 5, nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. It's a picture of chaos, of ignorance, of darkness. And then verses 6 and 7 warn us about one of the forms of this ignorant self-delusion that we especially need to watch out for if we find ourselves in a position of power. People who are in a position of power often make the mistake of thinking they're invulnerable, of thinking they're untouchable. Nobody can stop them. And listen to what these verses say. 
I said, you are gods. Remember, we read this a second ago. You are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. God is rebuking those who abuse their power. And he's saying, you think because you're powerful, nobody can call you to account. But I am going to call you to account. I'm more powerful than you. And I'm loving and I'm just. And you can't get away with exploiting and oppressing people because I'm the God of the universe. That's what God is saying. Verse 8, building on this idea, calls upon God to come set things right in the world. Don't you want God to come fix this broken world? That's what verse 8 is about. It reminds us that our ultimate hope for healing in in the world, our ultimate hope for peace and justice, is when God himself will rise up and make everything new. Look Look at the prayer here. Arise, O God, judge the earth. And then there's this. Incredible statement, for you shall inherit all the nations. It's going to happen. God will exalt himself as Lord and king over all creation. He'll bring his kingdom to bear until everything is made new. Now, as Christians, we can read verse eight in the light of the coming of Jesus. Amen. This business of God inheriting the nation started when God became incarnate and lived among us and we saw him. It was Jesus. And Jesus is the embodiment of this principle that Perfect power that's in line with the nature of God is a power that comes to serve. It's a power that comes to bless others. Jesus, the king of the universe, the all powerful one who created all things. What does he do during his life? He heals sick people. He feeds hungry people. He hangs out with sinners. He encourages discouraging people. He spends a lot of time faithfully, patiently explaining God's word to wonderful, hardworking, poor, uneducated people. He washes the feet of his disciples and then he goes and dies on a cross. He, he gives his life to serve people. But then he rises from the grave. He ascends to the right hand of his father. He sits down on a throne. He sends the Holy Spirit into his church and he promises that one day he will come back And once and for all, make all things new, which means that when we read verse eight, we can paraphrase that with a prayer that's in the last chapter of the Bible. We can just say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. That's what this is about. But in the meantime, King Jesus is already on the throne. Amen. So when we talk about the kingdom of God. Y'all know we got to talk about the already and the not yet. So everybody say Jesus is already king. And we're waiting for him to come back. But in the meantime, the Holy Spirit is at work in the church, the community of God, which is supposed to be the paradigm and the agent of God's kingdom. Which Here's what that means. Paradigm and agent of God's kingdom. So everybody point point to each other. Say we are the church. The church is the people of God. The kingdom is the power of God. So we are the church. But God wants his kingdom to be at work among us so that we're the paradigm. We're the model. That means when. The unbelieving world looks in at the church. They're supposed to see a little picture of what life in God's kingdom would look like. In other words, the way that we live is supposed to be a preview of heaven. So if the surrounding world is a world in which people hate each other based on all kinds of identity politics of ethnicity and race and political affiliation and culture and education and economics, the world's supposed to be able to look into the church and find people from all those different backgrounds loving each other, listening to each other, caring for each other, bearing one another's burdens, treating one another with dignity. And when they look in, they may choose to accept Jesus or not, but they're going to see that's what the kingdom of God is like. 
That's the paradigm of the kingdom. Church is also supposed to be the agent of the kingdom. That's salt and light. It means we're supposed to be the people through whom God is working through our gospel witness and through our good deeds of love to bring his righteousness and justice into greater reality in the here and now. Now, that leads us to some of these key verses that we need to look at in some detail. Verses three and four. These tell us what God wants us to do with our power. We started here and now we're coming back. So what does God say to these people he's rebuking about what his expectations for them are? God says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. That's what they're not doing, what he wants them to do. If they're going to repent, this is what it'll look like. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Now, we've got to talk about this word justice. The word is used a lot. In our culture today, and I often have the little flashback of that scene since I, you know, was born in the 80s. I remember The Princess Bride. Y'all remember that movie? And there was that great little moment. You keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. And a lot of people use the word justice today. And they use the word justice to mean a lot of different things, some of which are good, some of which are not good. But a lot of which are being politically determined by the left or by the right, as opposed to being in line with truth. If we want to know the truth, we need to look at Jesus in the Bible. Amen. So we can't not talk about justice, though, because the word justice appears 138 times in your ESV Bible. This is a biblical word. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Jesus is rebuking people for being really spiritually disciplined while neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. If we're going to be faithful Christians, we've got to think about justice. More than that, we've got to practice justice. So what does it mean? We could look at a lot of different verses of the Bible and talk about this. But let me just give you a, a few ideas. And then I'll start trying to demonstrate this even just from the text we've got in front of us today. According to the Bible, the idea of justice includes, first of all, honoring and respecting the God-given dignity of every single human being. Humans are precious. Every human is precious. Doesn't matter what their IQ level is. Doesn't matter what their cultural background is, what their life situation is. Every human being is precious. Why? Because every human being is created by God in the image of God. Which is why we're not just using empty rhetoric when we say every human life is sacred. Desmond Tutu, the great African, South African priest and civil rights leader, made the statement that when you dishonor a human being, you're defacing God's image. And that's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. Human beings are sacred. So if you dishonor any human being, that's blasphemy. So justice starts by honoring and recognizing and affirming that dignity of every human being. When we see the word justice in scripture, though, we often see it as justice in action, moving into the world to set things right, which is what you see here. When we talk about God's justice, we often hear God is coming with his justice to judge the wicked and to lift up the downtrodden. And especially the Bible singles out different groups of people who are vulnerable, the widows, the fatherless. Immigrants, the poor, the disabled, people who in Bible times and in our times, because of their life situation, are vulnerable to exploitation and oppression. And God, when he's justice is in action in the Bible, he's coming to judge evil, but he's also coming with grace and mercy to forgive people who repent and to set things right. So when he calls us to live with justice, he often says things like do justice for the fatherless and the widow. 
correct oppression. It involves not only honoring the dignity of human people in theory, but doing so in practice by helping vulnerable people who are hurting and challenging systems of oppression that would exploit people and dishonor their dignity. You can see that in lots of places like Isaiah 1, 16 through 17, where the prophet Isaiah says he's rebuking Israel for their unfaithfulness. And he says, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. By the way, that second one is harder than the first one, isn't it? Cease to do evil. That's hard enough. Learn to do good. That's another level. Learn to do good. And then he describes what that looks like. And he says, seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So the idea is if people are hurting, you should help them. But if you recognize that people in power are exploiting and taking advantage of people, then you need to intervene to try and protect those people who are being hurt. So that's an idea of biblical justice. And we see that idea being played out right here in these verses. What does God expect from these powerful folks, these quote unquote gods that he's rebuking? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Then he says, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Maintain the right. What does that mean? It basically means honor the dignity of these people by making sure they're treated fairly. They're created in God's image, so make sure they're treated fairly. And then rescue the weak and the needy. So this is calling us into creative action. Get busy. Start loving your neighbor. Help people who are hurting in your community. Look for the vulnerable. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. We could sum it up in the way that we did a moment ago. If you've got power, this text is teaching us, God wants you to use your power to serve other people, to bless people. This same point is basically made by Jesus. Um, first of all, just through his life example that we talked about a moment ago. But second of all, through his teaching. I want you to cross-reference one passage from Jesus. If you've got your Bible, go look at Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read to you verses 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus is saying here basically what Psalm 82 is saying. If you look around in the world, lots of time, powerful people, those who are in a position of power, are abusing that power by exploiting other people for their own benefit. They're using their power to dominate But listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. It shall not be so among you. Do you hear that today, Christ Community Church? This is how the world works throughout world history. People in power use their power for their own selfish ends at the expense of others. But now Jesus is saying, it shall not be so among you. Use your power to serve others. Use your power to bless others. And then he goes on to say this. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What what is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, I'm the king. I have all power, but I didn't come to dominate you. I came to set you free. I came to serve you. And I came to die on the cross for your sins. I came because I love you. And when I'm doing this, I'm showing you the way of God's kingdom. As Christians, as disciples of Jesus, what we're called to do is to believe that gospel of Jesus Christ 
and to respond by loving Jesus, worshiping him. And one of the ways that we express our worship for him is by imitating this example of Jesus. Whatever power, whatever influence we've got, use it to bless and serve other people. And friends, remember what we said a second ago about verse 8. We've got forever to enjoy the rest of God's perfect kingdom. But we've got a short period of time right now to participate in this redemptive moment, to make the best use of the time. Remember that phrase from Paul we looked at last week? Between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, this is an opportune time. In which we get a few years to participate with Jesus in bringing his healing love into the world through our words and through our deeds. Now, I want to wrap up today by trying to transition from the world of the text to our world and give you some practical steps. What can we do with this today? Psalm 82, the psalmist is talking about God bringing judgment on human and demonic powers in the ancient world that were oppressing people and calling them to use their power to bless others. That's what's happening there. What does this have to do with us? Well, like I said at the beginning of our talk today, I think this text, by implication, informs how we think about power in a lot of different ways. First of all, how do I use any power that I have? Second of all, how do I relate to people who are more powerful than me, like my boss or like government leaders or whatever? And third of all, how do I relate to people who are less powerful than me? So let me give you some super practical steps. First of all, Christians, we really, 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 really need to take seriously what the New Testament says when it tells us to pray for government leaders. Pray for people who are in civil authority. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So Paul says, pray for kings and who are in high positions. You need to understand, Paul is not writing this under the reign of King David in ancient Israel. He's writing it in the Roman Empire. And he's writing to a Christian community in which most people were not citizens, in which most people had very few political or civil rights of any kind. And he's saying, you need to pray for the pagan governing rulers. And you need to pray that God will move their hearts to lead in such a way that we can live peaceable lives, that they'll act with, in accord with God's peace and justice. Now, if you want to pray for people for in, in positions of power, I'm just saying Psalm 82 can give you another set of things to pray for, to expand upon this list. So I hope you pray for our Senate. I hope you pray for our House of Representatives. I hope you pray for Supreme Court justices and the president. I hope you pray for Governor Stitt. I hope you pray for Mayor David Holt and for the city council, and for the school board, and all those who are in positions of leadership around us. And let's pray, God, would you move the hearts of people who are in those positions of leadership to act in a way that is in accord with your justice. God, move their hearts to do justice for weak and vulnerable people, like the unborn, like immigrants, like the poor, like the mass incarcerated people of color in our city. Move their hearts to do justice for those people. Second thing you can do, and this one I think is really important for us in the year of our Lord 2020. You may have noticed this is an election year. I do not have a crystal ball to consult about how this year is going to go. And if I did, I wouldn't consult it because the Bible says not to do that. But I think it's probably safe to say it's probably going to be crazy. Don't you think so? This political cycle is probably going to be crazy. And there's probably going to be a bunch of craziness on the news. 
and a bunch of craziness on social media. And probably Christians are going to have an opportunity, if we're wise and mature enough, to look really different from the world if we want to. Right. And one of the things that I think is really important is to remember what this verse eight teaches us and to do this thing. Set your hope fully on the second coming of Jesus. Set your hope fully on the second coming of Jesus. Do you remember what we prayed from Psalm 146 during our call to worship this morning? Put not your trust in who? That's right. Put not your trust in princes and the son of man in whom there is no salvation. See, what happens in America and I think all too frequently in the American church is that every four years we lose our minds and we get confused and we think we're about to elect the savior. But guess what? There's only one savior. What's his name? So if you get your man or your woman in office, the world's still going to be messed up. Right. Which means we can we need to go into this with hope, even if things are going poorly. And we need to go into this with a sense of courage and steadfast resolve that even if they're going poorly right now, we don't give up because Jesus is going to win in the long run. But at any rate, we need to go into this with a set of humility, recognizing that if our political party wins, the world's still going to be messed up. So let's set our hope fully on Jesus. Now, third, let's move into a little bit more of this direct action thing. Here's what I want to encourage you. And I'm going to I'm not going to be able to talk about a lot of details of this right now. Maybe we'll get to a little more over the next couple of weeks. But we said, pray for those who are in power. We said, set your hope fully on Jesus. Now, third, steward whatever power you have to bless other people, especially those who are vulnerable. Now we're getting practical. Some of you right here, right now, might be thinking, I don't have any power. What are you talking about? But let me encourage you to think differently about that. God has given every human being power. This is actually part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Back in Genesis chapter 1, he said to humanity, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Power is a gift of God from creation, the ability to cultivate shalom on earth. To participate with God in that. And power, we can think of it in terms, big terms of political power or something like that. But power can also just be understand, understood in the sense of the ability to do something. The ability to influence others. And really little people have a big power to influence others. I'm just thinking about life at my house this morning. Let me tell you, two-year-olds can influence the atmosphere in a room in a powerful way. And every one of you here, you've got power today. Right here in this room, before you leave, you could pray for somebody. You could encourage somebody. You could bless somebody. Or you could have a really bad attitude and be really critical and discourage somebody. Or instead of using your power to bless and curse, you could just come sing some songs, listen to a sermon and leave. But you have that power to influence others for good and for evil. Now, I want you to start thinking in your life. Just first start thinking about your interpersonal relationships. Think about your family. Think about your friends or your roommates. Think about your neighbors and ask yourself the question. I have influence all around me. Am I using it to bless? Am I using it to curse or am I just not using it? And what our text is suggesting is you should use it to bless. Use it to bless. But now we can step back and talk about, okay, what about social power? Whatever social power and social privileges do I have? Now, if again, if you or a manager at a job, or you're a teacher in a classroom, or whatever that may be, you've got a, a lot of power in that situation. Are you using it to bless your employees? Are you using it to bless your students? Or is it really all about you? We could think about what civic influence. 
Listen, friends, we are not King David, but we're also not in the same situation as most New Testament Christians who had no political agency. Anybody take a high school civics class? I think this is one of our problems. There's like three hands, four hands, four hands in the room. Chauncey had a great civics class, I know, because he tells me about it every year. <laughs> it just comes up a lot. Everybody should have took Chauncey's high school civics class. But here's the thing, friends. In America, we've got the system. You could call it something like a representative democracy. For a lot of us in here, you have the privilege to vote. But even if you don't have that opportunity to vote, you've got other opportunities to do all sorts of stuff like uh, call your senator or like go set up a meeting. You can email the mayor. And this is a small enough city. You might actually sit down with him. People even listen. Everyone here has more agency than you think. Let me tell you a story. A few years ago, when our church was doing some immigration advocacy work, and we were talking about the necessity of, as we're dealing with really complicated policy questions about how to treat immigrants in our, in our society right now, as there's a global migration crisis, we started having lots of conversations with people in leadership. Senator Lankford's office, several people reached out to us at various times to sit down and talk about our experience in South Oklahoma City and how this could affect uh, how, how our perspective on policy issues and all that kind of stuff. And I remember there was a day at church in which uh, we gave people an opportunity. Hey, if you want to write down a prayer or a word of encouragement, we're about to go meet with Senator Langford's office. And an eight year old in our church wrote down a note that said, Dear Senator Langford, please help the immigrants because my best friend is an immigrant and I want her to be able to get a good education. I don't want her family to have to leave. And we took that handwritten note along with others and handed it to one of his aides. And she was moved and she was touched by it and says, I'm going to hand this to the senator and tell him about it. Now, that's an eight-year-old child getting access to a senator, right? Pray for Senator Lankford, but also I'm saying, like, you could influence him. And I'm not just talking about Senator Lankford. That's just one that we happen to have representative uh, or relationship with because he's local and he's a Christian. But the point is, all of us here... Have power. Now, what the text tells you here is not, it, it doesn't answer the complicated question. Some, so many of you come to me with questions. You're trying to get the pastor to tell you who to vote for. Listen, I'm not about to tell you who to vote for, guys. And if you're all stressed out about, listen, this party, I agree with this, and that party, I agree with that. Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. Let your conscience be shaped by the word of God, not your party. You've got to vote or to not vote. You need to make a conscious decision about that that's informed by the scriptures. But what I want to say is what we do need to agree upon, while there's all sorts of diversity in terms of how should this be applied at the level of politics or policy, what we do need to agree upon is that Christians have a responsibility to steward our influence, to use our power and to call those who have more power than us to use it to give justice to the weak. Amen. Finally, we're about to wrap up right now. And I just want to end saying here's the fourth thing I want to encourage you to do this week with this psalm. Confess your sins to Jesus. Confess your sins to Jesus. I think one of the dangers in our cultural moment right now, with a lot of our talk about justice, this word, you keep using this word. I don't know if it means what you think it means. One of the dangers is that we're really concerned with justice out there, more so than we're concerned with justice in our own hearts and our own interpersonal relationships. And there's a, a lot of us that, let, let, me, let me just say, say, church family, as this is a church that God has given a calling and an opportunity, I think, in a variety of ways to um, speak into some of these issues publicly. It's very important for us to recognize wokeness does not equal godliness. You got that? 
Wokeness does not equal godliness. And I can say all the great things that I want to about defending the rights of the unborn or defending the rights of the immigrant or defending, you know, challenging racism. But if I am not treating the people in my house well, there's a word for that, friends. Hypocrite. Right. So let's start right now by confessing our sins to Jesus, by saying, Lord, every one of us has hurt others when we should have blessed others. Would you forgive us? Would you cleanse us? And would you give us the humility and courage to become a part of the solution in the world, to imitate your love for us? Let's bow our heads together and begin to do that right now. We're about to take the Lord's Supper, which is an opportunity to confess and to receive the gospel again. But right now, I'm just going to be quiet and let you talk to God for a few minutes. Confessing any sin, asking him to show you where he wants you to go from here based on what we've heard from his word today. Lord, I want to praise you because of the reality that what you're calling us to do is what you have done so beautifully in Christ. God of infinite power, you came to serve us and to set us free and to bless us. Would you forgive me for every time I've either used my power in a way that hurt others or just failed to use my power to bless people when I had that opportunity? I'm guilty. I've been a participant in that sin of the world. For our church family, would you forgive us for that? Cleanse us by the blood of Jesus. And would you send the Holy Spirit here now to give us a vigor and an energy to be a part of your healing love and righteousness as it breaks into the world? Would you give us patience and humility to listen to one another when there's differences about policy opinion or about political strategy or any of that stuff, would you help us to stay focused on Jesus and stay faithful in the calling that you've given us? We praise you. We praise these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.